Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Hello. Sophie DiBenedetto. Hey, everybody. Eric Ostrich. Howdy. And today we have a special guest, Stephen Nunez. Stephen, can you say hi? Hello. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. And Stephen, I would love to hear a little bit about your uh, background on how you came to Elixir, because Sophie knows you, and she recommended you, and I, it's a great topic, a great story we want to get into. Uh, but I'd love to just kind of hear about how you came to Elixir yourself. Sure. Don't embarrass uh, me as your recommender. Well, okay. <laughs> the pressure's on. Um, yeah, so I got into uh, programming through Ruby. I think this is a story that a lot of people have um, sort of like a similar path. You you fall in love with with programming through Ruby, a really beautiful, expressive programming language that, you know, is it focuses on clarity and developer happiness, focuses on making you a really good creator of things and gets out of your way. And I was doing Ruby, having a really great time. Um, but as uh, multi-core architecture started to change, I grew more and more frustrated, um, meaning that I saw that my Ruby programs would perform well enough. You know, they would perform, but they wouldn't be able to take advantage of multi-core architecture. I knew things like JRuby and Rubinius even that did actual threading and were uh, able to let Ruby squeeze out some more performance were available and possible. Uh, but frankly, I was like, I'm not smart enough to do this. This looks hard and I'm going to make all the mistakes. Um, so I kind of sat frustrated, still loving Ruby, still loving to create, uh, still not having a problem with, uh, with what I was doing. Um, I saw Jose do, I don't know if people remember this, but there was a, a, a screencast called Peep Code. Everybody knows, knows that, but it was Jeffrey Rosenbach eventually got bought out by Pluralsight. And he had a sort of play-by-play -play with Jose, just like, hey, here's this thing. Uh, solve it with this new programming language you're working on. I think this was like Elixir 0 0.13 or something like that. Anyway, I saw it and I was like, this is amazing. Uh, the fact that you can do, it has the expressiveness of Ruby, had the expressiveness of, you know, it had the, the belief of putting developers first and that spinning up a process was as simple as calling spawn was mind blowing to me. And I was like, there's something really special about this. Um, so I kind of became a bit of a, of an Elixir zealot from then on. Um, at the time when I did discover Elixir, I was an instructor at the Flatiron School. Uh, as an instructor, I got to sort of like teach, you know, Ruby, Rails, full stack, React, Redux, Angular, Ember over the years. Um, and what I would do is I would start to keep one of my TAs, one of which was uh, Sophie at the time, um, after hours. I want to believe she stayed because she wanted to, but I also I was kind of her boss-ish. So she definitely, she might've stayed because, you know. Definitely wasn't good. afraid of you at all. That's good, that's good. Uh, checks in the mail. Uh, but I, I would keep people over and do kind of like lectures and we would build small projects and everything from like Slack bots to just anything to understand processes and distribution and, and supervisors. And I, I started to grow a small, uh, a small group, small coven, if you will, of Elixir programmers inside of the Flatiron School, transitioned over to the engineering department. And then, uh, yeah, then we, the, the takeover started. 
so that, that's, that's really interesting. Like, so you're working at Flatiron School, which focuses on teaching people Ruby and Rails, uh, because obviously there is a large market demand still for that, for those skills. Um, and you're starting to bring in Elixir. So was it helping to solve problems that you were seeing in your own, like the tech stack that you were kind of working with? Was it helping you solve problems that you didn't see other good solutions for? Yeah, I mean, I think my philosophy on, on using Elixir is, um, I guess, multi-pronged. Um, one thing is, like, I haven't seen anything else that has the observability tools that um, Elixir has. So the first project that we built here at the school using Elixir, sort of a first-class citizen, was um, our integrated development environment. Um, listeners might have heard uh, other people come on and talk about this a little bit, but essentially one of the hardest things to get started if, if you're learning how to program is, hey, you're excited about programming, you think it's a, it could be a good career for you, spend the next two hours setting up a machine, installing Ruby and install ASDF and Xcode and oh, you need Postgres and you use all this sort of other stuff. We made it so you can kind of like log in and just from the second of logging in, you have an environment that's set up at least for what we're, we want you to do. Um, and our original implementation was pretty straightforward. It was a couple of a WebSocket D calling out to a Go script, but it, it had a lot, it left a lot to be desired. It was one of those like spikes to production kind of things. Um, and I suggested that we could build something that gives us a ton of observability, gives us um, self-healing systems so we don't have to worry if a student has a bad environment to the point now that if like they shut the terminal down or like a file system monitor process crashes, it just heals, it dies, recreates a new Docker container, connects them in. Um, so a lot of those things would have been hard to figure out with something else, you know, probably monitoring like system PIDs and a bunch of other stuff that would have been way more complicated than had we gone with Elixir. Um, and then the, that's kind of like the a special case. We've got to build this thing. Monitoring is super important. Uh, Self-healing is super important. Distribution is really important when we do our stats and sort of like keep track of like who's active across the cluster is really important. Uh, but then the other side of it is uh, we spin up, we're starting to spin up more and more applications as we start uh, thinking about, you know, distributing our systems and using messaging to, to manage our microservices. Uh, the question is like, well, what do I start? Am I running Mix Phoenix new? Or am I running Rails new? And the argument I usually make for going with Phoenix is unless you have like a specialty need, there's like a perfect gem that exists right now that is exactly what your, your application is basically just a shell for this, this gem. I, I say consider using something like Elixir and Phoenix because I like to think about the base of a Phoenix application just being higher than, what a, what, than a Rails application. What I mean by that is that if you just need an application that does request response, you're sort of fine. You know, like Elixir will do that and will do it well and you have like caching because of the beam and you can, even if you take advantage of nothing else, your base is better. But the second you're, you want to say, I need a rich channel layer. I want WebSockets, I want connections, I want events. The second I need presence across servers, like that's so easy to reach for in Elixir where with something else, well now I've got to maybe introduce like a Redis or I've got to like, maybe I got to use a separate server. I'm going to use Fae if I'm using Ruby and Rails. Am I going to try to go action, uh, action cable? It's just your base is, is you can do more yeah, with, with Phoenix easier if you have to go that route. But if you just need request response, it does that pretty well too. So that's sort of been my, uh, my pitch for uh, when considering like Mix Phoenix new or, or Rails new. Yeah, I mean, I think that pitch, I think that pitch makes a lot of sense. But I think too, like, 
at the end of the day, individual developers are always going to bring, you know, our own preferences and baggage into it too. So individual like squads or, or teams or just people are going to kind of weigh pros like this against this thinking like, oh, well, you know, I don't know Elixir as well. I'm not as familiar with it. Like my development cycle time is going to be slow or like I'm going to be confused and that stresses me out. So I feel like at least in my experience like working with you at Flutter. And it was also kind of the story, this adoption story of getting people, getting our teammates, getting our colleagues um, to kind of fall in love with the language a little bit and get excited about using it to get over that hump a little bit. Yeah, I think that's something that you did very well at Flutter. And I'm curious if you have more thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of it is um, teaching people just enough. We're developers, right? And, and, you know, we're an excitable bunch. We find something that's nice and shiny and we're like, this is amazing. I want to GraphQL all the things I want to do. We just, just dive nose first. So, I mean, I think part of it is, is balancing out, uh, you know, being a resource available for, um, this is how you sort of uh, do this in Elixir or would you be interested in seeing this thing? The amount of time that I've tapped someone on the shoulder to show them something cool is um, yeah, numerous. And I think that that does help with getting people excited because they can see a path forward, right? That kind of goes into learning theory a little bit, right? That put them in the space where there's a challenge that is, is challenging, but not, not so challenging that it's impossible to, uh, to surmount. So you wind up giving them just enough to kind of like say, oh, have you considered using the supervisor strategy? You know, like, I don't know what they are. I was like, well, these are your options. And this is when you would use one or the other. Go nuts. And they come back a day later. And I'm just like, we built this really cool thing. Check it out. And, and yeah, that, it's just like giving them enough to, to be dangerous. And then, then encouraging them to be as dangerous as possible. So you're at Flatiron. You've brought Elixir in. You've kind of built this little team around you and kind of been... What I love that you said there is that you... Uh, you know, you were excitedly sharing like, hey, here's something cool that I learned or here's something cool that you can do. You know, just, you know, you're sharing it while you're excited. So you, they feel the excitement. And I think that's an important part in helping people uh, kind of get on board with something is just, sure. just see the merits of it and the excitement. But I'm also curious, like to now as the team has been growing, you have apps in production. What has it been like where you have uh, people who are maybe still in both camps? You have some in Rails and some uh, in Elixir, or there's projects in both, or are there people on the team who'd say, you know, Elixir's fine if you guys want to do that. I'm just going to stay over here on these apps that are Rails. Uh, like, what's that been like for the adoption of the team? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, the, the general feeling is um, that they know that if they go to, anyone who goes to an Elixir project will be supported by other team members that can help them, you know, uh, survive the world until they transition, we kind of expect that they'll be, you know, slower to ship or that they'll just have to get onboarded to not only the project, but to the, to the language and the, the conventions and the perspectives. Um, so one thing we work really hard to do is to create that community internally. Like, Hey, if you need, you're joining an Elixir project, um, feel free to talk to Steven. He's happy to kind of sit down and I'll sit down with people, um, find some time, you know, do a quick crash course, you know, literature available, you know, tons of stuff from a lecture school is, you know, huge for just answering some of the basic questions. But um, I lean more on the side of, of let's sit together and like go through, let's build a Phoenix application. Let's talk about Ecto. Let's talk about processes and gen servers. Let's talk about supervision and kind of like let them know there's like, there's a floor under them. I haven't uh, run into too many people that are, uh, 
you know, on the team and have been here for a while and I refuse to work in Elixir, which is really cool. There are some people who have not had a chance to work on Elixir yet. That's just a matter of like, we have a huge Rails monolith and we have, uh, you know, that there's just work that is exclusively in Ruby right now. Um, but I, I, I don't think anyone is against it. And I think part of it, like I said, is because of that, um, just being open about, we get that this is new, we get that this is hard, but it's not impossible and you have help you know, your friends are here to help you. That's cool. So I know uh, from Sophie that you've also been instrumental in bringing in some other technology that you've taken Elixir and brought that in. And now you're saying, hey, here's some other things that can be really helpful for us solving some problems. And one of those was bringing in message queues. So I'd love to just kind of hear about how that came about. Like in particular, like if I'm, you know, I'm I, I, a full-time developer. So if I'm working and I'm recognizing Recognizing that I have certain problems, what do those problems look like or feel like that you've encountered that say, ah, message queue might be a good solution here? Yeah, so we, uh, we had, uh, we're currently using RabbitMQ for our messaging. Um, and we were previously using it uh, even before I started using it in this new and interesting way. Um, we had it because uh, our Rails monolith would have, we use the gem sneakers, which uh, kicks things off to Rabbit and just does background jobs over Rabbit. Um, the need uh, to kind of like reimagine how we use Rabbit came up when we started to build different services that um, communicated exclusively through messaging with each other. And then we have to figure out how do we, right? We have to figure out how to get these messages in a way that's agreed upon throughout the entire sort of like ecosystem of applications. What are the norms and conventions that we want to follow? Um, how do we want to um, enforce that with Rabbit? So we've been using Rabbit for a while, um, but really the part that that uh, I worked on and Sophie worked on with me uh, was figuring out those norms and conventions for sending messages, um, designing queues, designing our uh, message delivery uh, strategy, and then those message contracts. Um, so we're using Rabbit now. Uh, previously, when we were using Sneakers, uh, Sneakers does essentially a point-to-point -point message. So just like one thing sends a message to another thing, that worker. Uh, and uh, there can be several workers listening to the same queue. And one of those workers will grab the work off and do the work, right? So that's kind of like pretty conventional, um, like a queue setup where N number of workers are listening to the same queue one message gets taken by one of those workers and you don't know, and essentially round robins. Over the last many years, we've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well known and come from really interesting backgrounds. So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out my JavaScript story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. Uh, what we wound up doing with uh, Rabbit was using what they call a, a fan out strategy. So you can send a message to an exchange um, and an exchange connects several queues and every single one of those queues gets the same message. 
right? So as a, if you had in this world, if you had one worker on, you know, six queues, there would be six messages would get sent out and there would be six workers working on the same thing. So a little bit different than that first, that first bit where they're all sort of just like waiting for one message and round robining. You're getting, uh, you're able to kind of like connect any number of, of uh, workers to that, to those queues. And the benefit or sort of the thing that we were going for was how do we make rabbit behave like uh, something like uh, an immutable log kind of. Uh, so I know that, you know, Kafka is an option. Um, but also if you've ever looked at the event tide messaging framework, and so event tide is a messaging strategy for distributed systems in Ruby. It's a very cool project. Um, essentially what they're doing is they're writing to uh, a Postgres table and then pulling down, uh, you write to the table and say like, okay, this affects, so my domain cohorts are very important because we're a school. So cohort A, cohort B. Um, and if you want to subscribe, you listen for things that are cohort related and you kind of like process those messages. We're trying to basically fake that in Rabbit. I think um, one of the things that, because I was a, you know, part of this process, uh, especially early on, one of the things that we kind of struggled with or went back and forth on, and I'm definitely curious to hear where you guys are at now, is uh, what should sort of the backing system of this overall messaging platform be? You know, we went with Rabbit, but initially we were looking at uh, Eventide because we wanted to have some of our applications that are Ruby on Rails versus some of our applications that are Elixir and Phoenix being able to kind of communicate using this messaging platform around the world of our ecosystem. So we kind of started out with Eventide. We did like a spike on setting up Eventide in our main kind of Rails monolith, got something working, and then moved on to how would we get this same setup working on the Elixir side? Oh no, there isn't an Elixir offering that's exactly like Eventide. Maybe we'll try Commanded. Uh-oh, it has a totally different database scheme. And then sort of down, down, down this rabbit hole of like what would it look like to really use like an Eventide back system? Um, so yeah, I won't take words out of your mouth, but curious to hear more about you know, why rabbit pros and cons, where that's left you guys now. Yeah, that's a really good question. So like part of it was, um, so the idea was like, can we, can we use this database instead? Um, and you know, the, the first pass was we'd have to build out a bunch of plumbing ourselves, uh, because while there is a Ruby gem, um, there's, and like a, a set of, of gems and you could say like, oh, we'll just use the Ruby version. Uh, we did have an additional constraint that we came up with, which was we wanted to use uh, protobufs to um, enforce message contracts and that's not built into event Eventide. So we would have to then basically build our own sort of wrapper and start from scratch with Eventide. Um, it's still not off the table. That's something I, I, we still want to evaluate and see if there are benefits to using that instead of Rabbit. One big thing that I can think of that we get by using something like Eventide is that you have a persistent log that is in a database um, that you know exists, and you can you can bring up new applications and then just like run them through the events from the beginning of time, and then you have a new app that has a up to date database and is storing just the versions of, of just the parts of the data that it cares about. I think is really uh, interesting and and opens you up to do a lot of things. If you're working in the world of queues, once a message is consumed, it's gone. Right. So I can't jump on the queue and be like, Hey, can I get the messages you had on your queue three months ago? It's going to be like, no, I don't. Who are you? Why are you talking to a computer? You know? So that's one thing that I think is, is worth exploring. And uh, we have, we have some, some spike tickets on our backlog to definitely look at that and see if it's worth uh, 
if the juice is worth the squeeze there. Um, but I, I'm definitely interested. Uh, and we went with Rabbit uh, partially because, you know, uh, we, it, it also was in response to the availability of our ops team to sort of like help us with infrastructure and set things up. We had Rabbit, so we're like, all right, well, let's see if we can make this Rabbit thing work. Um, if it was as easy to be like, well, maybe we would have done it in Kafka, possibly, because it seems like it sort of matches a little bit more. Um, Might have tried that, but um, the Rabbit thing is working out pretty well. So are you using Rabbit as you have like a Rails monolith you mentioned and you have like Elixir, one or more services. Are you using Rabbit as like a message broker or queue between the services? Is that one of its roles? Yeah, yeah. So, so everything is focused on, on the entities in our domain. So we have a couple of things that are like top level concepts and each those entities are owned by you know, one of our applications. So we have a, an, an application that manages our are, is our registrar, right? So students, right, they pay money and they register for a class. So like a first class concept could be a registration, right? So somebody actually registered for a course. This application manages that. Um, and Rabbit is structured in such a way that there's a queue, there's an exchange for registration events. So someone, a registration was updated, you know, obviously created, rescheduled. Um, and those would happen there in sort of like that and that exchange. And then we have other services that connect to that exchange using that fan out strategy. Um, so it is essentially a way of sharing, of uh, communicating uh, the intention, the changes to those entities across our applications. The agreement is your application owns this entity. You're the only one who can admit events for it. Um, and then everyone else consumes what you, what you say is true as a fact. Their, the responsibility of the receiving end is, hey, I said this is true, and I'm sort of like the boss here, so you know, please take my change. So those, um, the messages that sort of go between systems, um, where did you track, uh, where do you track the schemas and, and whatnot? How do you have a shared contract between systems there? Yeah, it's a really good question. So um, we have a, a repo that holds all of our raw proto buffs and the compiled versions for the languages that we support right now, Ruby and Rails. Uh, I'm sorry, Ruby and uh, Elixir, not Rails. And now we recently wrote some rake tasks and mix tasks to pull down the compiled versions from off of master from that repository. So it's as simple as running like rake, uh, you know, in our case, learn IPC sync proto buffs. It pulls down the latest ones and then uh, you can have the latest and greatest. Another thing that you know, unit tests usually cover if like I'm expecting a protobuf to have this field and it's changed out from under me, um, your tests will usually fail. Um, no guarantee, but we know we're all writing tests all the time and there's TDD happening, it's a beautiful world. So that's usually, that's how we, we sort of catch things. I think uh, production will also start alerting you that uh, <laughs> you're missing some things. Yeah, yeah, it'll be like, what is, what is this? What is this? Uh, oh, that's actually one interesting thing about using uh, Rabbit in this world. The way we have the queue set up is like, let's say you have a worker that receives a message. So like, let's say your application just totally did not do the protobuf sync and you don't care. Like you're just not paying attention. Eyes not on the ball. And new messages start getting sent down the pipe that you don't know how to process. Because we're working with uh, Rabbit and queues, your process, your worker will receive that message and then it'll raise an exception because it's like either no method error or something. It will crash, it'll put the message back on the queue and then your worker will sort of like, in the Elixir side, it'll flap a couple of times. You know, we have a restart strategy to try the messages and then everything just fails and, and 
shuts down, which is by design. Stop the world if like some for some reason my messages are off, right? It's you don't want to integrate a fact incorrectly. Um, and then you you go get the alerts, see that maybe something is up with the protobuf, sync the protobufs to that work. Oh, it did. It fixed all the things. Great. When you push to production, your the messages are still on the queue, and then you just start consuming them again. So really big focus on not losing sort of losing any work right you can't i don't know how to do what to do with this message uh try syncing the protobufs or more, most importantly do not lose these messages because again facts emitted on the line need to be consumed if you know you're because they're facts you have no choice to in the matter so i know with at least i believe with kafka there's like a kind of a, a pointer or like a record kind of counter that moves as you take things off and process them so that if you do come back later you pick up where you left off. Did you have to implement something like that or does Rabbit do that for you? Yeah, it's one of the benefits of, of using Rabbit in this case is that my workers are, so the, the idea of Kafka is that your, um, your workers are smart, right? They not only keep track of where they were, but also like what they're listening to. Um, Rabbit, the philosophy of Rabbit is that Rabbit is responsible for brokering the messages. So actually getting them out to you. So if I bring up a worker to a queue, if I attach a worker to a queue and there are messages there, Rabbit's sort of on the hook for saying, well, here are some messages that were put on this queue and that you have not processed yet. So you kind of just work them, work them off. Um, so that's kind of one, one nice thing about it that, that still does put that on, on Rabbit's side. And you'd mentioned protobufs. I was just wondering, is there a particular Elixir library that you use to help integrate with protobufs? Uh, yeah, it was uh, Bitwalker's X protobuf. And I would say that was actually the most complicated part of getting started with protobufs. Using protobufs themselves, you know, defining our message contract with the protoc, I think it's called, uh, DSL, super straightforward. The docs are fine. Um, but just setting up that compilation script from protoc into Elixir took actually like a super long time. Um, trying to think what was so complicated about it. I don't know if it's because Elixir just, you know, still adoption isn't quite there. The community's smaller. There's far fewer resources, a lot fewer options when it came to doing this compilation. When we were looking to go from ProTalk to Ruby, it worked pretty much right out of the box with some other package that we were able to find. Um, but to Elixir took, uh, yeah, took a little bit of work. So I wanted to ask just generally if you have a, a good feel for the landscape of beginning RabbitMQ stuff. I've done RabbitMQ in production, but it was a it was a mess at the time. The documentation was like old and bad, and you had to follow a mailing list to figure out. Oh no, actually, those are terrible. Go read docs here, and it was a it was a woeful experience. But that was uh, seven years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll say that the documentation has come a long way. Um, what's really cool about their documentation is uh, that they have tutorials on how to do different things four different languages, which is kind of nice. So, you know, looking at how you would do, so for instance, we had to implement RPC um, in our world. Sometimes we just need like a need asynchronous call. We need a call that is synchronous because asynchronous call is tough. And um, wanted to try to do that with avoiding uh, endpoints and just sort of like isolate the parts that are, that require a call, right? Uh, you know, a, a listener on the other end. And the tutorial just kind of tells you how to do it. It's like, oh, you do this, you make a temporary queue, you send it over, it replies back to that queue, you bind to it. And it kind of works, which is kind of cool. Um, but I, I know that I did a good amount of, of reading of the documentation and even the tutorial uh, got me a long way. 
Um, I definitely do think Rabbit is like an interesting technology, especially coming from the world of Elixir, because like it is just like extending the reach of message passing to to other lesser systems. You know, just the idea of like sending these messages, fire and forget. You know, the the, the philosophies that we have for building these asynchronous systems. Um, you can kind of like bring other other systems in really easily. So definitely worth a look. So if you, um, I guess, kind of going along with that, if you only had Elixir systems, so everything is converted away from Rails like tomorrow, uh, would you still use Rabbit or would you just make it one big cluster and do normal message passing? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think just like the value of flexibility to include other things is worth thinking about using something external. Um, even if it is just consuming, the, if it's consuming the message that you would send to a, to a peer node, um, because like one thing that we're finding is that uh, right now we have systems that we own, which are fine. We hook, hook those into our railway framework, which is the, the library and the framework that we have for man managing messages. Um, but then we also have these like integration points with external systems. So we talk to Salesforce a bunch and we'll be talking to the Canvas LMS a bunch. And we don't own those exactly. Um, so to normalize how we communicate with all systems, what we have is essentially a small service that sits at, that's on the receiving end of Rabbit and then makes the corresponding API calls to Salesforce and Canvas and then responds to webhooks and then get those, gets those back into our ecosystem. So because everything is not an elixir yet in the world, um, I, think, I think it makes sense to kind of like try to stay agnostic and you know, focus on those messages that everyone can sort of consume. And then uh, I guess my other thought slash comment. Um, so I've been dealing a lot with Kafka recently. Uh, and I just want to say, I think you made the right choice with Rabbit. <laughs> uh, and to maybe stay away from Kafka because it is Ooh. a real big pain to set up in production. So hot take. <laughs> so uh, along with that, I'm just curious, like as you were considering Rabbit, you said, I think you said you already had it in, in use within the company. So that, that is a big reason to do something is because you already have internal, internal expertise. The ops team already has something working and running. Um, but I was wondering if there, if you'd considered other cues, like, you know, there's Amazon SQS, uh, like as Eric mentioned, there's Kafka or, you know, kind of uh, AWS's flavor of that is Kinesis. And there are other cues too. So I was just wondering if you'd kind of considered other cues and there was, uh, and, and you and Rabbit had other features that you're like, you know, we really, really do just want this one. Yeah, I, mean, I think we went with Rabbit out of uh, a combination of what was available and what was the lowest lift. We had some requirements that required us to, that, that called on us to uh, integrate different uh, services that we were spinning up. And, you know, we looked at the option of, well, we can make synchronous REST endpoints for these things and put them behind like an API key or start designing an, an auth scheme uh, versus let's use asynchronous messaging because I think it's, you know, we're okay with eventual consistency and that, that whole world. Uh, so it was, we knew we wanted to do some sort of messaging. Rabbit was available. But, I mean, I think the, you know, we're still moving our things over to AWS. Now there is a chance that if we do stay with this paradigm of um, using something QE, you know, like we stay with Rabbit or we want to continue to use the, exchange uh, framework that we use in railway now uh, that we would use a combination of SNS SQS to mimic this idea of an exchange to n number of queues. 
Um, and like Sophie mentioned earlier, there's still the, the chance where we might do some uh, work to see if there are big benefits to using something like the eventide you know, flow. Again, writing to like an immutable log that can be read as like a history of your essentially events in your business. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T, adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. So another question I had was, as you start to bring in these external components, um, did that make testing harder or did it have an impact or did you have a, a workaround for that? Just like, because now I have this external system and I'm just running my tests. Kind of what, what's that like? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one thing that I, I will say we're, we're figuring out now. Um, so the, the real pain point is that now you have this, this concept of a global entity that originates in one system and then you know, is necessary in another system, right? So like I mentioned the concept of a registration or even a cohort, right? Where we're gonna put, we're gonna put some students. Um, we have systems that need, need to know the cohorts that are created but those cohorts don't originate in that system. So our registration system needs to know where can they put students, but the where gets created in a different system. So how do we sort of handle for that? Um, since we're still pretty small in our, in our services, we can go and make sure that, you know, global UUIDs match in system A and system B, and that's kind of a pain. Um, but that's, that's one thing that we're, we have uh, lined up in uh, for Q1 to figure out, like, what does that look like? And we have a couple of ideas in mind. Um, the other... Um, so some of those ideas that we have are the idea of a global seed file. So migrating the concept of a seed um, from like seeds.rb or seeds.ex where you're actually writing, you know, Ecto or active record, um, you, know, ex ex you know, executing actual active record code to like insert records and Ecto code to insert records. Uh, essentially, it's a, the seed is a series of events that every application can or can choose to ignore, can, can process or choose to ignore, and then integrate that into the system whatever in any way that sort of like is valuable to you. Um, very excited about this idea because it means that we can have a robust global seed that gets added to over time of events that emitted, are emitted. Everyone starts with the same facts. Everyone can get their own QA environment. Everyone can get their own local environment to a, a replicable state, which is, which is cool. Um, but that's something that we're going to investigate. The other one is we have a library that we wrote in in-house called ProtoCanon um, that it shoots protobufs at you. Uh, it's, it's the idea is that you, you know, fill out a form and say like, all right, well, imagine that the system out in the ether somehow sent you this perfect message. How will you respond? And then it kind of like sends it through. You can test that your handlers are integrating those messages as well. Um, I think that would also benefit from the concept of a global seed so you can, you know, have like a history of protobufs and be able to replay messages. Um, but that's, that's something that we're, we're figuring out now. It hasn't hurt us too, too bad because again, we're, 
we can be a little handholdy in our, in our unit tests to say, okay, this is the message that I'm, I'm expecting. It's an instance of this proto buff. It goes in the handler. It does the thing. Um, but I would like, to, that's something I want to, I want to see mature in the framework. We're coming up close to time, but I did want to give you a chance to mention anything in particular, like outcomes that you're particularly proud of or, um, aspects of this design that you thought were really cool. Is there anything you could like to share there? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one thing that I'm, I'm, I think everyone's proud of, if you've written any sort of like library or, uh, you know, framework or a way of thinking is that it's adoption. Like when people start using it without prompting you, without even coming to you, that's like really cool. So internally we had, uh, you know, it was basically like the team that Sophie and I were on and just the edges of another system that we, um, had to integrate with that first as so sort of like the proving ground for it. Uh, and then we started noticing that other teams were starting to create their own protobufs and like create their own queues and their handlers and their workers. And I was like, it's happening. I think Sophie and I ducked out in a room and started jumping up and down. We were very excited. Um, and you know, it shows that there's, there's something there. Um, this idea of essentially extending out your function calls to like a network is like really cool to people. So I like that idea a lot. I like the, um, um, the fact that, again, people are, are using it. Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, the code we wrote is cool. I'm proud of the library. I'm sure we could pick out a million elements of it that like we would want to brag about. But I'm just totally with you like that the impact on the people on our team within our organization was so incredible to see. So certainly the adoption outside of our own like immediate little squad, but also even within our team, seeing more junior team members really own the code in this library, be developing in such a complex system, be writing about it, be speaking about it to, you know, other engineers across our organization is so very cool to see. And, you know, I have to say that I think writing in Elixir is a part of that. It's so well suited to solve this problem. People were able to get so excited about it on our team. Um, great resources, even just in the RabbitMQ documentation, the tutorials themselves about working with uh, Elixir and Rabbit. So, yeah, it was cool. Nice. Well, that is probably a great place to wrap up this topic. Let's move to picks. Josh, do you have one? I have a couple and I will go with the one that excites me, but not as much as the second first. So the first one is site generators generally. And so there's uh, an Elixir static site generator that I saw pop up on GitHub Explorer called Serum. And I have not played with it yet, but it looks nice just reading through the docs. It's uh, very well documented. But my favorite static site generator is also new, and it's Elm Pages, and it's for Elm, and it will generate uh, a PWA for you, as well as a static site that hydrates to an Elm app, and it's glorious, and I love it. And uh, you can do lots of really cool stuff with, with custom markdown. Uh, so we have custom elements that when you insert this HTML produces Elm which then runs, potentially does uh, side effecty things, and that goes into the generated HTML. So like an OEmbed card, the static site has the OEmbed card. Um, so this makes me happy. Uh, and it does that by using Puppeteer to drive Chrome. But that's the one that's like kind of interesting to me. But the coolest thing is this vvvv.org, very, uh, very stateable domain name. Uh, and it is a extremely cool programming language ba based solely on the video and having looked through some, some of its propaganda, as it says, uh, for doing, uh, they call it a hybrid visual textual live programming environment. Uh, it's for managing large media environments, uh, physical interfaces. They do this projection of like the determined skeleton of a person on a camera to these 
these lights that are shining from various spots in a room and shining and intersecting with a plane at a certain point and they do the projection and the math inside of this language and it's just it's just really cool if you watch the video it's it's like 20 minutes long and it's outstanding eight minutes long sorry anyway so really cool thing completely not elixir Sophie, how about you uh yeah i have two one of them is programming and one of them is not uh i came across this snack at whole foods that i'm absolutely obsessed with they're kind of like peanut butter cups but instead of peanut butter it's coconut butter and they're keto friendly if that's your thing and they're just absolutely delicious i ate way too many of them way too quickly and i've been thinking about them every single day ever since i ran out um I'm gonna pop a link in but they're really really good you should definitely try them and uh another link so i started learning go which has its ups and downs that i won't get into but uh you know the super basic intro the tour of go site is really great like very comprehensive resource and it's just been super helpful as i've tried to kind of grok more and more elements of this language you know half the time i'm not totally getting something i'll google it the tour of go site will come up i'll dive in and it'll just really clear it up for me so should you find yourself interested in or forced to learn golang uh check it out eric uh so i'll go with uh one programming one non-programming as well uh if you add two more v's to vvvvv uh it's a game uh and they recently open sourced the uh the code for that so you can see what that looks like and i think the 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 current famous thing about it is that there's a like 4100 line switch statement <laughs> that like deals with state um so it's just uh, i think it's c++ so it's not elixir but whatever it's it's still cool to see a game that's came out 10 years ago that was like on steam and whatnot it's open source now so go check that out uh and then my other thing is uh i've been reading the uh expanse series again um so i'm on the second book so caliban's war uh and i've stayed up way too late two nights in a row so that seems like a good indication that it's a pretty good book <laughs> that is a phenomenal series I haven't read the books, but I've uh, seen the show, and yeah, it's re- I thought it was really well done. Yeah, I was. I I watched up until where I thought book one ended, and then started reading book two, and then I'll I'll kind of watch where I think it's going to end. I don't I don't think they they directly follow the the books in the series, so yeah, I don't know they're still still good. Cool. All right. Well, mine is uh, so Jose Valim a couple months ago had created started creating a library as like a pool boy replacement. It's called, uh, uh, it's called Nimble Pool. And so that's an interesting thing in itself. Uh, but what is really interesting is looking at the single uh, commit and line that I, I have a link to it in the show notes. Check it out. Because what you'll see is that, uh, is that it's how he did the module doc at the top of the file. It loads a readme file, cuts it up using hidden comments, and uses large chunks of it as the module doc. And I just thought that was super cool, you know, like, cause you know, you oftentimes you want your code to be in sync with the readme and the readme is like the GitHub landing page, but you may, it's, this is particularly the case for libraries, right? But uh, you know, it's like being able to just actually, as you're compiling it, load up a file off the file system, splice it up and have that become part of the module doc. I just thought that was super cool. So that was a fun one. Steven, how about you? Cool. Uh, so I've got a couple, both are, are books. I'll do my non-programming one first. Um, I have a two-year-old at home uh, and parenting is hard. 
Uh, so I'm reading a book called No Drama Discipline it's by, uh, I think, Daniel Siegel. Uh, kind of covers a lot of like neuroscience of children and like what, where they are with their uh, like brain development and sort of like how to start instituting uh, discipline essentially, where discipline means to teach. So how do you sort of teach this kid, be the rest of this kid's brain? Uh, I'm enjoying it a lot. It's really interesting. Um, my two-year-old is in the, uh, not quite terrible. He's just two, but you know, sometimes terrible. Um, so that's my, that's my uh, non-programming one. Uh, my programming one is uh, Practical Microservices. This is a beta book that's being published by Pragmatic Programmers. So pragprog.com. Um, their books are generally great. I'm a big fan. Um, Dave, if you're listening, you know, discount codes are cool, whatever. Um, and uh, it's by I think Ethan Garofalo. It is the book that it was a big inspiration for a lot of the stuff we did in Railway, just sort of like to get our thinking around this kind of like distributed, eventually consistent service-based um, system. I mean, the first two chapters on their own are super valuable, talking about like what makes up a monolith, but then they also get into messaging and contracts. They integrate with Eventide. Um, really nicely. So definitely worth a, uh, a look if what you heard today was, was interesting. Awesome. Well, st thanks, Stephen, for coming on and talking with us today. If people would like to follow you or get in touch with you online, how should they do that? Follow me on Twitter. I'm underscore Stephen Nunez. I'm trying to get my hands on the other Stephen Nunez who hasn't been online since 2013. Twitter, if you're listening to this too, hook it up. Uh, that'd probably be the best way. Awesome. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.